Okay, this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast in the studio today. Micha Odenheimer, my good friend Micha Odenheimer, who spends most of his time in wild places like Nepal and Haiti and where else? Burundi. Burundi. Zambia. Zambia. Oh, I my mean, God. My life is so boring forehead. compared to yours. So, Micha, you used to be a journalist and... Uh, how long ago did you have this idea of, that you're going to go into these exotic places and help heal the world? Well, what happened was I'm, an, I'm a journalist and I'm also a rabbi. Um, did you know that? I knew you were a rabbi, but your other things just dominate so strongly. Yeah, yeah. You that's know? true. But they come in. It comes in also a little bit. Um, so what happened was I moved to Israel. I grew up in L.A. Uh, then I was in New York for a while, you know. And I moved to Israel in 88. And in 1990, and I was writing for the Jerusalem Post and different places, and um, in 1990, somebody tipped me off that the entire remaining Ethiopian Jewish population was coming down from the mountains, uh, you know, from Gondar to Addis Ababa, because Ethiopia had renewed relations with Israel because... The Soviet Union had fallen apart, and, this, and the Mengistu Haile Maryam, the Ethiopian dictator, needed money to fight the rebels. And anyway, he renewed relations with Israel and with you know trying to get in the good graces of the United States. And you're thinking, I want to go. And then I heard all these, the remaining Ethiopian Jews are in Addis Ababa. I was like, whoa, I've got to see this. You know, I'd seen Ethiopian Jews in Israel and been, you know, really entranced and fascinated. So I basically got... Three, no one was covering the story. I got three or four different uh, newspapers, you know, the Jerusalem Post, uh, Long Island Jewish World, Yediot Achronot, a bunch of places, the Jewish Forward, and uh, sent myself. And, um, and that's how I got involved. So I was there that whole year. I came back four times. I was with Mengistu Haile. I interviewed the dictator, Mengistu Haile Mariam, for like three hours. And, and you were already a rabbi then? I was already a rabbi. Wow. Yeah. So rabbi. a rabbi journalist. Rabbi journalist. Yeah. And, and what is it that's it's not the ideal yeah. combination? <laughs> that would be doctor rabbi, but you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, this it's it's fascinating because I, I interviewed uh, Bernard Henri Lévy recently, Ooh. and he's sitting just where you're sitting, and and I was fascinated how a man of the mind, you know, like this great philosopher, has this incredible urge to go on the ground in all these places that he's written about. Right. So well, a, he, I have something in common with him in that I was in Mosul, or Nineveh. You know, he writes this book, uh, The Genius of the Jews, and a lot of it is about Yonah and Nineveh, because he was in Mosul in Iraq, which is Nineveh, and I was there too. So I, 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 I'd also thought some of those uh, thoughts about the destruction of Mosul. Yeah, so he says, you know, it's like thinking with his feet. You know, he, he can't really do great philosophy unless he's just there. It sees it like for real, and in your case, I don't know. I, I also found like you know, I feel like I had periods that like when I was in my twenties, so I was very involved with learning Jewish mysticism, um, you know, Hasidus. I was with Shlomo. I was with, uh, and then Shlomo I felt Karlbach. Shlomo Karlibach, Rabbi Shlomo Karlibach, and then I got into being a journalist, um, and I felt like no, I have to penetrate the world more. What what's going on really in the world? Really to see what's going on in the world. And then I finally got to what I do now, Tevel Betzedek, which is to actually try to do something about it. Um, although journalism also does a lot. I mean, I'm, I, I love journalism. 
Anyway, so I got to I got to Addis Ababa. I was there a lot during that year. And then I got to Operation Solomon. The morning of Operation Solomon, I got to Ethiopia. I was also tipped off that it was going to happen. Mengistu had fled. The rebels had surrounded Addis Ababa. And I was at Operation Solomon. It was amazing. But then I had to decide, am I going to stay? I'm going to get on the last plane to go back to uh, Israel. I came for the Ethiopian Jews. I'll leave with the Ethiopian Jews. Or I've seen so much now of Ethiopia, and I've been so moved by the people there, too, that I'm going to stay for the rebel entry, even though I was scared stiff and I'd never been in such a situation of, uh, you know, sort of a combat rebel situation. That's kind so of I ended sounds up staying. scary. Yeah. So how, how dangerous did it get? What well, did you see? Well, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story uh, that when the rebels came in, I, I, we heard that the only phone that had a direct line out of the country, because uh, the others were operated, you know, by operators, so that people could, they could listen in, the government. The only one was in Mengistu's military command, which was now pretty much abandoned. So I went there with a bunch of journalists. The rebels drove us in. We caught it, you know, they were like taking it over. We're talking on the phone. All of a sudden we see the rebels are gone. Now these journalists beforehand had ragged me so much about uh, being an Israeli and said, you know, you're taking the Ethiopian Jews, you're going to put them in the South Lebanon uh, corridor, and uh, you're, you're going to use them for cannon fodder, and Israel is a fascist country. I had to kick one of them out of my room. But anyway, now that we're there, all of a sudden fighting breaks out. There's, there's shooting. They turn to me, they say, Micha, you're an Israeli. Get us out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, so that was what, but the next day, I was... Did I, you use that phone? Used that phone, called in the story. We got to call in the story. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And how dangerous did it get? And yeah, how did so you the get next out? Day, the next day was probably the most dangerous day that I was. I was in. I went to the piazza, which is the main uh, plaza there, because uh, the Italians were there. And uh, all of a sudden, I see these uh, this group of about a thousand. Uh, uh, protesters, the Amhara protesters, who were very angry that these rebels had taken over because they're from the north, they're from Tigray. There's a lot of ethnic tension. And they feel that the Tigrians are getting the Eritreans' uh, um, uh, independence, which they did. So they see me, and about 100 of them break off, and they want to kill me. I mean, they're yelling at me, and they're getting themselves worked up. I feel like they're about to lynch me. Did you have a press sign, and it didn't mean anything to them? Yeah, and I said, I'm American. I'm not American. They said, you're American. You made this deal with the rebels. I said, no, I'm not American. I'm Israeli. Even worse, even though Ethiopians usually love Israel, but, you know, in this situation. So I st- but I knew enough to know what they were about, so I started saying, Ethiopia must stay united. This is a travesty. I must tell the world. And they started, you know, agreeing with me, and the- but just as they started agreeing with me, the rebels started shooting at us. I mean, they shoot. I think they shot right over our heads, although about 10 people were killed that day. And we scattered and, you know, jumped. And, and about an hour later, I saw I was on the rebel side, and I saw them kill somebody right in front of my eyes. So that was, it got, it got a little hairy, but I was, it was very exciting to me as a young man. I think now I'd be scared stiff, but as a young man, I loved it. Yeah, we can do that then. <laughs> uh, how do you feel now when you see the, some of the controversy with the refugees in Israel and, you know, the role of, you know, what's the role of Israel in terms of taking care of them and the protests that you see on the streets? Uh, you, do you have mixed feelings about that? Well, look, uh, if the... Israel is the only country with a land border with Africa. No other country has a land border with Africa. Our border with Egypt is a border with Africa. So, you know, obviously Israel couldn't take hundreds of thousands of of African refugees would be too much. But 
My feeling was they closed the border. No one else has come in for the last couple of years. We have these refugees, 40,000 refugees. Let's take care of them. Let's take care of them. I was very strong, actually. And part of what I did was try to get right-wing voices and religious voices in favor of keeping the refugees and was successful, somewhat successful at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they had a plan to try to move them around the country so they wouldn't be just in that one place in Tel Aviv, right? They're trying to do that. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're do you have any that. relationships with the refugees Definitely. in Israel? Yeah, yeah. I, I have some friends. I have some refugee friends. Things- I did a story about the Eritreans for... Eretz Acheret magazine, I went into their churches and saw what they're doing. And my feeling is even that, you know, I was involved with South Tel Aviv because I had an organization for Ethiopian Jews and their absorption in the 90s that's still still around, still active, Association of Ethiopian Jews. I founded it. And um, I feel that t- South Tel Aviv is, is actually better off than it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't it fascinating, Micha, when you see these... Uh, new generation of Eritreans and Ethiopians, and they they pick up Hebrew and they're like fluent in Hebrew, and they're like Israelis, and then they start you know doing rap songs. It's totally you, crazy, isn't I mean, it crazy? I, I was in uh-huh. in in uh, in this in, in area called uh, in South Tel Aviv, and I see these kids. There's this really cool cafe there. Um, I forgot the neighborhood in exactly, but it's in, behind the bus station. And I say, what are you? So one guy says, oh, I'm half Thai, half Russian. <laughs> in other words, another one is half Eritrean, <laughs> half uh, Chinese. And they're speaking fluent Hebrew. Fluent and, Hebrew. And, and the ones who were young when they came, especially the ones who were born there, right? Absolutely. They're like so Israeli. Yeah, yeah. I actually tried, I went to one of the uh, Datilu Mi big thinkers the, uh, and uh, tried to convince him to come out. You know, he's like more a Merkaz Arab, very strong. I tried to convince him. I said, take these, you know, refugees and, and, and you know, stand up for them. Um, but, it's, but it's a hard sell, and I think that that's one of the things that I have against, I don't know if you want to get political or not, but I have a, a, a gripe against the Netanyahu government that, that I feel that they're polarizing Israel around some of these issues, and they used, among other things, the refugee issue to... To, to it's such polarize. a shame. It's such a shame because it's really a feather in their cap, as far as I'm concerned, when you see a country that's so multicultural and it embraces so many ethnicities uh, on the street, at least. I think it just makes Israel look great. It's amazing. It should be celebrated. I mean, the neighborhood know? I live in, Nachlaot, uh, near the Shuk Machane Yehuda. So on Shabbos, you go to Gan Saker, you know, that it's like the Israel, Jerusalem Central Park. There are Indians and Sri Lankans playing cricket. <laughs> There are Arabs from East Jerusalem making barbecues all the way over in West Jerusalem. There are Haredim. There are Israeli young people doing acro yoga. I mean, it's just incredible. Now you're in trouble because I'm going to ask you to write about this for the Jewish Journal. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really good. So how did you evolve? So 1990 had this incredible experience in Ethiopia, and it eventually you're a journalist, you're a rabbi, you have this incredible moment in really Jewish history with the Ethiopian uh, move to Israel, and then you start this organization, Tevel Betzedek. Right. What is it? Well, what? that was much later. That, that was, was late, but eventually... That was in 2007. So what happened what, between what happened? 1990 and 2006? So what happened was, well, the Operation Tevel was 1991, and after having stayed for the rebels, so I said, okay, I can do this. I can be, and I love the adrenaline of the crisis situation. Someone told me that Aristide, the president of Haiti, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, had been in Israel and knew Hebrew. 
had been in Israel for two years. His, his, he, was a, he was a priest, and they'd sent him there. His order had sent him there. So I went to Haiti, and I eventually got, a, got an interview with Aristide. I just walked up to him at this event, and again, with the other journalists looking at me, and this Israeli and whatever, and he, I said, Bati Israel came all the way from Israel to see he embraced me, invited me to the palace. Then I went to Somalia, which was crazy. Somalia was the craziest thing. And anyway, I went, I kept so going. So you're still in journalistic rabbi mode. Journalistic rabbi mode. In and the, when in you would between, travel, where do you go daven for Shabbat? My, in my yeah. room, in my room. Uh, yeah. I had an experience when Somalia, which is completely Muslim, and um, I was at the, and uh, I'm davening Mincha in my room, and this, the Muslim care, caretaker of the whole place comes and t- tries to talk to me, and I can't talk to him because I'm davening Shimon Esrei. <laughs> And afterwards, I said to him, I'm, I'm so, uh, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. I couldn't talk to you. I was praying. He says, no, this is the first time we've ever seen uh, white people pray like we do. And uh-huh. it, was, it was like a connection b- between us. Yeah. Did you find other Jews to pray with? Were there any Chabads or any kind of Jewish communities anywhere? In Somalia? No. Not Somalia. Not Somalia, although there were, there were people who were trying to claim that they, they were Ethiopian Jews uh-huh. and that okay. I should help them get out. But unfortunately for them, I knew too much about Ethiopian Jews. I realized that they were fake. But um, yeah, there's a Jewish presence in, in, many, uh, in, in, in many places. Not in Haiti. In Haiti, there actually is. There are a couple of few Jews, a few, a few Jews in Haiti, actually. And also, I met a voodoo expert who, who had written about voodoo and Kabbalah. So there are, uh, you know, sort wow. of uh, footsteps of uh, Jewishness in, in, in a lot of, uh, lot of places. In Burundi, where Tevel Betzedek, where we had a project, uh, the, the Tutsi, uh, some of the Tutsi elite think that they're Jewish. They believe that they're actually Ethiopian Jews who came. I mean, that's amazing in Africa now. That wow. There are Jewish groups all over. That's Seriously? Sure. Yeah. Oh, I saw the one in uh, Uganda. In Uganda, that's a famous one. Unbelievable. That's a famous one. Yeah. But there's also in Cameroon, in Ghana, in Nigeria, the Igbo, in Zimbabwe, the Lemba. I think in, in 10 different African countries, there are, there are groups that are trying to become Jewish or are Jewish. Yeah, well, I mean, we're driving hours and hours on these bumpy roads, the middle of nowhere. It's Friday, sundown. We see this tiny little village, and then we go into this mud hut, and they're singing the Shlomo Kalbach melodies You're that crazy. I heard you sing when I first met you in, in Orange County. In Orange County, right. <laughs> you know, literally in the middle of nowhere, Micha, I'm hearing like Shlomo Kalbach melodies on a Friday night. These were like crazy. the Orthodox the Orthodox Ugandan, Ugandans, Ugandans who were connected were, to Rabbi Riskin. Exactly, and yeah. Rabbi Riskin just sort of adopted them, and he's bringing right. one after also another. Also in Papua New Guinea, you know, there's a group. Papua New Guinea, crazy. But I'm actually most interested, I am interested in that. I'm, I am interested in the question of whether we should be trying to convert people on a larger scale. But I'm more interested in... What's our relationship with the non-Jewish world? You know, my Rebbe Shlomo, he, he said there are three tikkunim we have to make, three fixings that have to be made in the world in this generation. One is between uh, men, and, uh, men and women. The other is between parents and children. And the third, you know, he was very against hitting children, for example, or being harsh to children. And the third is between Jews and non-Jews, that there's a real 
a real fixing that has to be made. We're very wounded, you know, about about that, about who we are in the world and because of our suffering and because of many things. And so I'm actually interested in what what is our role vis-a-vis the non-Jewish world? How do we participate now that we are, we have power now. I mean, we're also vulnerable. You know, that's the paradox. I, I know that we Jews are vulnerable. I don't, you know, I think that the problem, problem often between the left and the right is that the right doesn't realize how powerful we are and the left doesn't realize how vulnerable we are. So I try to th- think about both. And I feel like that with the power we have, we need to be part of the conversation of what direction the world should be going in. What does it mean to be a human being going into the 21st century? You know, in the, tw- in the 19th century, we wiped out slavery. In the 20th century, we lifted women up to uh, hopefully be equal with men or at least begin to be. What does it mean in the 21st century? What, how are human beings going to progress? And I, I see the issue of uh, poverty in the world as, as, as something that Jews should be involved in, uh, in, in, in trying to fix. Yeah, you know, I, I, I look at uh, anti-Semitism right now. That's like the hottest subject in our community. Uh, you hear it left and right, nonstop, anti-Semitism, the rise in anti-Semitism from the left and the right. You hear about it in Europe. You hear about it in America. And then I wonder if um, we need to sort of obsess over it too much because somebody like you, you just go and do your thing. You don't really worry about anti-Semitism. You just do your thing. I care about anti-Semitism. You, know, you it care horrifi- about it? It horrifies me. Uh, but, but I also have to say that in the, a lot of places I go, uh, either people don't even know who Jews are, you know, which is one possibility, although the intelligentsia knows, but, or they love Jews. There's, there's so much. I mean, I find the anti-Semitism is pretty much United States. Obviously, there are a lot of people who love Jews too, but you know, pockets of anti-Semitism in the United States, Europe, and parts of the elite, especially the left in places like India, but the Amcha, the people in India, in China, in South A- Southeast Asia, in Africa, that there's a lot of love and admiration for the Jewish people. One thing I saw in Africa was that people identify with the Jewish people because we've managed to keep our identity our specific tribal identity and our ancestral identity, mm. even as we're becoming part of a global world. So let, let's go back one step because I want our listeners to get the full picture mm-hmm. of this amazing organization you started in 06. It's almost, you know, 14 years now. It Tevel Betzedek, and, you know, ex- explain to us what it oh, is. Okay. So basically I became interested and fascinated with What's happening in the world in all these countries during, it was the age of kind of fast-track globalization. 1990, Soviet Union fell. That's when I started traveling. And I'm going to all these countries and starting to understand this process where the world is being knitted together economically. Obviously, we understand environmentally, politically, et cetera, et cetera. And what's happening to the poorest people, which often in these countries are the, are the, are the most, vulnerable. Uh, most vulnerable in the majority. Majority, you know? right. And then I went on a trip with my family in 2005 to India. And for two and a half months, because I've been telling my kids all the time, you know, all my stories and everything. And I said, I have to take you to see. 
But then we went to more, you know, what's called the Hummus Trail. Hmm. Uh, you know, Dharamsala and Manali and Rishikesh and Ladakh and all these places. And saw all these young Israelis there. And something lit up in my head. And I said, wow, this can be the connection I'm looking for, how to connect Israel and Judaism in an authentic way to the problems of the global south or whatever you want to call it, world poverty or whatever, environmental destruction, all these kinds of things. And so I went back the following summer and, you know, because I saw these kids and I said, these are amazing kids. Okay, some of them are just trying to, you know, relax after the army, smoke a few joints or whatever. But a lot of them wanted something deeper and wanted a deeper connection, didn't know how to make it. And so I went back the next summer, decided to do it, in, to start in Nepal and uh, recruited a group, and then we started Pesach 2007. And initially, it was about bringing groups of Israelis who wanted to come, and American Jews, uh, together, learning Torah together, Jewish Torah, Jewish social justice, things that are relevant, trying to understand the world, also through a Jewish lens, also through a secular lens. And then going out, we were sending them out to volunteer in different organizations in Kathmandu for a few months. But very quickly, we realized that we could make a huge difference if we, you know, stay on the ground, understand what's happening. And we came to understand that what was happening was that all the problems in Kathmandu, trafficked women, street children, slums, were because these villages still, the majority of the population was in subsistence farming villages, and those villages were in crisis. They were, they were falling apart. People were being forced to leave, forced into exile, forced to terrible work situations. Is this connected to globalization? It is in the sense that... Um, well, what was the uh, reason? Because why, what is the reason for the crisis? So the crisis is many reasons. One is that there's, the population grew because one of the most successful uh, endeavors was the World Health Organization's vaccination. So children don't die as much. So the mm. more children, more fragmentation of land. Also, the forests were, were being cut down. There was a lot of deforestation. Um, and uh, these villages need the forests. They need the forests for the fodder for their animals, and they need the animals besides for the milk and the meat, but also for the fertilizer for their fields. There was also a lot of people being drawn to the Gulf states to work in the Gulf states for, you know, really a pittance and for five years at a time. But they were drawn out there, and then there was less people working, working in the fields. Plus, the part that is connected to globalization is China was pouring in food, you know. So you have a country that's all, all agriculture, and yet China, with its modern techniques, is pouring in food. And because Nepal is a signatory to the global agreements, they can't stop them, and the farmers can't compete. There's something biblical about that, Michai, you know, hmm. like people who live from the land and all of a sudden their sustenance, their source of sustenance, it's kind of fritters away. Vaihirav Baritz. There was a, you know, it's a deep a crisis in the land. Yeah. Yeah. And the Talmud actually says that famine is always political and economic and it's not. You know, way before Amartya Sen, this Nobel Prize winner said it, the Talmud already said that basically scarcity comes through economics, not and only through... So you're there and you're seeing this crisis and you're thinking, this, what can we do? And, we ha and, and I'd met a, a Nepali who had come to Israel on an Israeli government program for a few months and it ended up staying and doing a master's and PhD and two years of postdoc in plant science at Ben-Gurion University. Mm. I brought him back. I said, we're going to build a team that can go into these villages and really help them uh, pump up their agriculture, 
learn new techniques, connect to market, working with the kids also, working with the women, because it's very strong, women's empowerment, very strong. The women have to take leadership because the men are all, all over the place. And we found that with a three to five year commitment in these villages, we can really transform them. And meanwhile, the volunteers are coming from Israel and, and US and other places, and they became like a force, another kind of force in the village working together with, we grew a Nepali staff to about 60 people. So and they're working would, together would the with staff them. stay? Stay in the villages. Year-round? Year-round. Year-round in the villages. Year-round. That was one of the things we found. Too much development work is helter-skelter. In and out. We're we're in a thousand villages, but it turns out they reach each village every six weeks for for an hour, you know? Right. But you stay in one place. You work. Get to know the villagers. You can go to their fields. You train them in your training places, but you go to their fields and see how they're doing. And also the presence of volunteers, if if done correctly, uh, also is inspiring to the villagers. They're very interested. It's it's a point of interest. In so eventually you became quite well known and you had this, you started recruiting volunteers from America, from Israel, and all kinds of students would, would go and give us an example of a typical experience of an American uh, student who would go on one of your programs. So one of the things that I think is a great thing is that you know, one, one of the Americans said to me, when I came to Nepal, I knew I would be encountering a, uh, very, a, for, a culture very foreign to me. I didn't know it would be the Israelis. <laughs> so one of the things that happens is that the Americans and the Israelis really make a bond and, uh, because it's, nobody else, it's nobody's territory. You know, uh-huh. if the yeah. Americans come to Israel, it's also amazing. But the Israelis have their social life, you know. Right. There, they're really together, and they build the community together. And they go through this month of training, and uh, then they go out in the villages, and we're doing also Shabbat at the same time, and the Chagim, and um, trying to support. We also have religious people. Sometimes it's hard, but we support them in being Shomer Shabbos and kosher in the village. Yeah, that's what, uh, one thing I find that's really fascinating with your movement is that you really incorporate Jewish rituals, Shabbat and Kashrut, and learning Torah at the same time as you're doing Tikkun Olam. That's, my, that's what I feel is the main message, in a way, of, the, of this organization, is that I feel like in the Enlightenment, 200 years ago, Jews had to decide, am I going to become a universal Jew or a Jewish Jew? I'm going to put the ghetto walls up, or am I going to... You know, that was a modern dilemma. Do I buy into modernity or, or, or not? And the Reform Movement, at least initially, bought into modernity, the Bundists, or whatever. But... And the, and the Orthodox, you know, made, made walls around themselves even, even stronger. And I feel that was a modern dilemma. The postmodern world, we don't need that anymore. We know that everything is particular. Nothing is, you know, and yet everything is universal too. So we, the challenge is how to create, how to deepen the Jewish identity in a way that also fuels the, the, the ability and the, 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 the confidence to participate in creating a, a, a better home for everyone, for all of humanity, and how to do those two things at the same time. But it's a challenge, you know, because uh, lighting the Shabbat candles and doing Shabbat and going to Daven three times a day and going to synagogue on Shabbat and taking my kids to Jewish day schools and all those Jewish rituals, it's not obvious that in that, in those rituals, is the ritual of going to Nepal 
and helping Nepalese farmers. You know, it's it's a challenge because, and I think that's why for so many Jews in America, it's become either or. So the the tikkun olam doesn't come with Shabbat. It just comes with tikkun olam, and God bless them all. I think it's there's so much value there too. But what you've done is not obvious. Look, one of the reasons I, I moved to Israel is because I said, if I stay in the United States, I'm going to have to be on the mikvah committee and I'm going to have to be on the shul committee. And, you know, in Israel, you're just a Jew, you know, and everything you do is, you know, yeah. is Jewish. So also going to Nepal is also Jewish, you know, and there's not that, that not that split. Yeah, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work to be uh, to be a Jew for sure. But, you know, I say sometimes, I was arguing once in the Chabad house in Kathmandu with a guy who was saying, why do you work here? You should only be helping Jews. You should only... And I said, I said, I was arguing for a while. I said, I'm not going to win this argument. And I said, let's yeah. bench. And then I said, <laughs> let's bench. Baruch Hashem, Hazan et haolam kulo betuvo. You know? And it's like emphasized so much in that, in, in the Birkat Amazon, that God feeds everybody and God cares about everybody and every he creature. Mil, yeah. You know? So I think that there was a, 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 a much more of a sense of Jewish... How to be, how to see the world with Jewish eyes and to care about the world in that pre Holocaust period. You know, people like Rav Cook, people like Hillel Zeitlin, people like the great Kabbalist Rav Ashlag, they were all really, really cared and cared about social issues and universalism at the same time as, of course, they're drawing their strength from, from the Jewish sources. And I think that after the Holocaust, and, and for many reasons, we've sort of disconnect. It's again a disconnect, and, and, and we have to try and bring it back together. Well, I think it's maybe one of the biggest challenges of the next century for American Jewry is how to create a marriage between the two, particularism and universalism, in, right. a, in a way that strengthens Jewish identity. And you know what? You go to you know someone from Guatemala, uh, I was yesterday down in Arizona. I saw the refugees from Guatemala. Uh, you go to, you know, somewhere in Nepal, at, uh, one of the ethnic groups. They relate to you more if you have your own, you know, they don't want to see a generic <laughs> human being. Human being. <laughs> they want to see somebody who has roots. That, you know? Uh, yeah. So I don't think it's a contradiction. That's a real powerful Thing you, that you, uh, you, there's a lot of columns I'm going to ask you to write now okay. for the Jewish Journal. But take us beyond Nepal now. So Nepal was your sort of coming out right, uh, with your organization. Right. And then what happened after Nepal? So after Nepal, what happened was in, in Haiti, we, there was the earthquake in Haiti. And I'd been in Haiti, as I told you, with Aristide. That's when I had met you. It was the, around that time. That time around and then time. you had that experience with Sean Penn. Right. In Haiti. That's true. Yeah. So, Tell us about that. Yeah. So there was, a, there was an organization called Israel that at the time was an umbrella organization. They didn't do their own work on the ground. Now they do. But they funded us for five years to be in Haiti. And we were in this initially in this refugee camp of 50,000 people and, um, and sending people who had been through the Nepal experience. And we put a strong emphasis on community. 
on getting the strength from the commu- from community and how people who don't have anything, when they have each other, they have everything. Now, in that case, there was the disastrous earthquake, right? Yeah. So you came in the wake came of Came into that. the refugee camp. Right. 50,000 people in these plastic tents that they, you know, they made themselves, not tents, really. They just, you know, improvised terrible rains and mud. I mean, really a hard situation. And a whole different challenge than Nepal. A whole different challenge than Nepal. What was the challenge here? The challenge here, I th- one of the challenges was to uh, get b- people, to help people have hope and have, mm-hmm. have, have, a, strong, have a strong spirit and, um, and uh, eventually to be able to move out of the refugee camp because they're gaining skills that will enable them to you know, rent an apartment and, and do everything that they uh, It must be need. so daunting. You know, you go there and you see this enormous pain and suffering. And where do you start? So one of the things we did, because we'd done, worked a lot with youth in, in Nepal. So one of our great, we have a, one of the first people who came, an Israeli guy, Ben Katsir. He learns languages like that. <laughs> so he learned Nepali like that. Then he learned Creole like that. They're just people like that. Yeah. And... Uh, we started, he started a youth movement called um, uh, the Dream Team of young people, teenagers in the camp, who we were training to go out and uh, help people in the camp. So, for example, during the cholera, there was a cholera epidemic. Mm. So they went out and made sure everything was sanitized and, you know, worked with the sick. And, you know, to get people, impa- you know, to get people to work for their own people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a that's a kind and of. A, tell us about uh, your experience Sean with Sean Penn. Penn. So Sean Penn, he his organization, he had adopted that camp, and he was actually staying there for. I uh, remember for weeks at a time. I have to hand it to the guy; he was staying there, and it wasn't <laughs> luxury. I mean, it, he was, you know, he had a nice tent, but a tent in the middle of, uh, you know, and um, and we worked very closely with him. Um, and what would he do? What would he? What was his organization doing? What yeah, would he what do? was both? He his organization was in charge of uh, all kinds of infrastructure mm-hmm. and you know sort of big basics, things, basics yeah. and big things in the camp. Now he's a he's a he's a nutty guy. I mean, he's I admire him because he's he's there. He puts himself out there, but he went around the camp. He always had a pistol on his on the side <laughs> of his, and he um you know, but but I have to say that one of our one of our volunteers, it was in the middle of the night, and she was uh, felt endangered by, by somebody. And she called uh, Sean, and he came right down. He came right down with his pistol, and he's ready to, you know, oh. to take things on in the middle of the night. But one of the things that he ended up saying was that, you know, he, he was a very left-wing guy. Uh, you know, he was mm-hmm. friends with the Venezuelan dictator, and he'd been to Iran and this and that. I think he to Iran. Cuba. And he said... Look, I see these Israelis. I see what they're doing, and I think that America should have. I, I, I attribute it to the fact that they were in the army, that they just know how to work, mm. they know how to improvise, they know how to be in in hard situations, and I think that America there should be a, at least one year of service for everybody, and that mm. would change America. Mm. So really, seeing the Israelis really changed him, and changed his opinion of Israel. And how did you pick your other countries that you've had over the years? So you so, have Nepal, Burundi, Haiti. Burundi. What was the next one? Burundi. So Burundi, we wanted to do, we wanted to go to Africa because Africa is the big arena of development. I mean, initially, we'd been in Nepal because also we wanted to get the Israeli hitchhikers. Um, and um, 
so Burundi, we went to because we felt it was a country. There weren't many organizations there because there had been a civil war for many years. Nelson Mandela brokered the peace, and we thought the peace was going to last. So we thought, here's an up-and-coming country. It was the most, the highest degree of malnutrition of children in all of Africa. So we said, we have a lot to do here. But unfortunately, after three years, the Hutu-Tutsi thing, which they have just like Rwanda, they're like the poor cousin of Rwanda, mm. um, it, it sparked again, and, and we, had to, we had to leave. Yeah, so now we're going into Zambia, and um, it's more stable, but still tremendous, tremendous need, and uh, we're really excited about it. There's so much that we can do in Zambia. And when you go, do you still have a presence in, like, Nepal, for example? Yeah, Nepal, you still for sure. Do. Yeah, Nepal, we just finished a five-year program, five-year uh, project in a very poor village area that we just got glowing report from the Nepali government on what we did. They do an assessment of it. We were able to shift a group of about 15,000 we were working with, and 30% of the farmers shifting them to commercial farming, which is huge. And, you know, it's like I, I hear... Is there any way to scale this, any efforts to scale it? Are other organizations that have huge resources that might take your model and sort of apply it to many, many different areas? I think we're ready to do that, and I think that's part of wanting to be in Zambia because it's more of an arena. And I think that we're, we're also in Zambia. We're going to be doing a training center that will also, but in the village area, uh, which will also feature Israeli technologies and things like that. And I think that... We can, t we can take this model. We haven't yet been able to really tap into the big money mm -hmm. because it's very complicated. And like, for example, USAID gives to, say, Save the Children, and then Save the Children divides it up into their local organizations. We haven't been able to connect in that way yet, but we are hoping to do so. How do you raise your funds? Is it just private donors? So one thing I want to say, first of all, is we have a trek that we do a fundraising trek and I want to invite anyone who's interested. Beautiful trek in the Everest area. It's not a technical climb. It goes to about 17,500 feet. And it's in October, October 28th. So if anyone's interested, I'm very, you know, then wow. you have to raise $5,000 to come. Uh -huh. And so it's going, to be, it's going to be great. Who goes? What age? Every well, Last time we had from 23 to 73. Wow. Now I have to say that the 73-year-old works out three hours a day in the morning. So he was, a, he was quite a guy. Wow. But I went. I'm not in the best shape in the world. I was the last guy up to the top, <laughs> but I made it. And I made it. Well, you know, for any listeners who might be interested, give us more details. How many hours a day of walking? How long's the whole trip? It, it, the trip is 10 days. Um, and the um, it's about, it depends how fast you walk. I think the faster, the faster and younger people can do, you know, six hours, seven hours a day. Mm -hmm. I sometimes had to go nine, 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Oh, so I see. I see. You know, and um, with Sherpas, and it's very safe with Sherpas. We we have Sherpas. Uh, uh, we have uh, yaks carrying our our, our stuff, mm -hmm. not Sherpas, because uh, you know it's hard for the yaks too, but they're strong, and uh, so you don't have to carry your own stuff. We sleep in uh, you know guest houses along the way, and uh, and it's very safe because if anything happens um, to anybody, you know, altitude or something like that helicopter you right back i see so uh so yeah. wonderful how's the coffee that's really what i care about the, the most. coffee yeah they're good coffee there's good coffee good coffee i might good go coffee. yeah yeah there's good coffee <laughs> and and then besides that we're mostly from found foundations jewish yeah. foundations 
and uh, private and private uh, private donors. Is there a dream you have, Micha, that you haven't been to a place where, wow, you know, down the road, you're Nirvana, that hmm. you'd love to go? That I'd love to go with Tevel Batsedek or just myself? Either one. You know, I loved Indonesia, and I'd like to explore that more. And I'd love to go to the Congo. I'd love to, like, mm. go down the river. I love rivers. I'd love to go down the river in the Congo and also mm -hmm. the Amazon. But uh, Yeah, South America, you haven't done I haven't yet. been there. I haven't been to South America. I've been to yeah. Haiti, haven't been to South America. Are you um, getting a new generation of people and volunteers in your organization that are going to continue? Absolutely. And not only that, but we've produced a lot of people, young people, who are ready... Uh, working in this field. Like, I feel like we've been able to grow this field. So, for example, one example is the two heads of an organization called Israel, which is, I think, a lot of people know about it, are both, uh, you know, Yotam Politzer and Vani uh, Glick mm -hmm. are uh, both t from Tevel Betzedek. Wow. For three years they were with us in Tevel wow. Betzedek. And that's how they got their whole start in this. We have the first uh, young lady from New York who is the first person who has an MA in international development from Columbia and a, and she's finishing a rabbinic degree from JTS. We you know we were yeah. able we were able to start a program a master's program in Hebrew U called Glocal. We were in, instrumental in starting it. Brings people now from all over the world. Yeah, this is really the space I can call a Jewish tikkun olam. Yes. You know. Yes. That's what this space is. And it's cuz it's really when I say Jewish, I mean the Jewish rituals. Right. You know, not Jewish in my head that I'm doing Jewish values and stuff. That's worthy, too. But this is like uh, concrete Judaism with Tikkun Olam, isn't it? Yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of secular people, too. And a lot of them tell, us, tell me it's their first exposure to a Kabbalat Shabbat, to an intense traditional Kabbalat Shabbat or, an, right. or a Shabbat or a Birkat Amazon. Or correct, correct. Like so the, the secular ones experience ritual Judaism. Right. Yeah, right. amazing. Um, yeah. So um, if somebody wanted to go on this incredible trip, trip yeah. October 28th, uh, give us the website. Give okay. us the info. Tevel Betzedek, T-E-V-E-L-B-T-Z-E-D-E-K.org. And uh, or climbforjustice.org. That's the the website directed uh, uh, for the trek. Climbforjustice.org. Okay, great. I'm going to repeat it. Uh, Tevelbetzedek.org. T-E-V-E-L-B-T-Z-E-D-E-K.org, and climbforjustice.org. And then you get all the information. If you want to volunteer, if you want to donate. We're looking for volunteers for Zambia now for four-month volunteers to help us plan. And what Zambia. age group? What age group? Um, you know, yeah. I'd say twenty to thirty-five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how long for four months? Four months in Zambia. Wow. With a very elite group, young elite group, not so not necessarily young, but who are you know helping us to map out and plan what we're going to do, be doing. Now you know the, the the one part of your life we didn't talk about is you're an amazing father with great kids and. An amazing husband as well. What was that like for all these years when you take off for three, four months, and you know, and the kids? Of course, they knew what you were doing. Yeah. Um, look, my youngest, I think, didn't. You know, still hard, is is a bit upset about that. She because she was the one who was still, you know, really still at home and everything, yeah. and all this was happening. 
uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't always easy. Right. And I've actually now stepped down from being the director. Um, I'm now the rabbi of Tevel Tzedek, but I, I'm trying right. not to travel so much. Right, right, trying. Right. I'm not succeeding. Right. Was it, was it hard to actually have phone lines to call back during those yeah. years? It must have been, eh? Yeah, communication. It's easier now with WhatsApp. It's easier now. It's easier now with the WhatsApp. But also the trips, the travel, was the, the plane rides and everything like that. It was it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, on that note, that's what Judaism but I love it. is. Right? I love it. I'm not yeah. doing it because I'm a good guy. I'm doing it because I love it. Right. I can, I can tell. I was, you have, it gives you an adrenaline rush. And uh, God bless you, Micha. Thank you for coming into our studios. And you'll get on JewishJournal.com. You'll hear more stories from Micha Anheimer on Tevel Betzedek. And thanks again, and best of luck to you. Thank you, David. Thank All right. You. And next time you're in town, you come back in the studio. Uh, take care. <laughs>